our New Testament lesson actually quotes our Old Testament lesson. The Isaiah passage, the context of the Isaiah passage, is uh, most likely uh, the threat of the Assyrian Empire is pressing in. It destroyed, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom and they're pressing in on the southern kingdom. And so even the allusion to Midian is this idea of that God will bring life, that God will bring his salvation. Um, and uh, the remembering the Midian is a supernatural defeat that God gave them over their enemies. So uh, this passage has a very this-worldly meaning, but it'll be quoted in, in a very different kind of way in our Gospel reading. So our Gospel reading is taken from Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Listen to the Word of God. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Nephthali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Nephthali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed we may encounter you the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I spent many summers uh, taking different groups uh, on mission trips and spent a lot of time in Madison County, North Carolina. Uh, there was a point of time when every house that Habitat Humanity had built in Madison County, one of my groups had been part of. We probably helped build over 25 houses there built hundreds of wheelchair ramps, did more renovations than I can imagine. And I think I figured out I took over 1,000 people over 15 years down to western North Carolina. And we developed a particular partnership with this uh, very skilled carpenter. Uh, he was kind of a cowboy poet type. Uh, he was uh, Tom. We always called him Habitat Tom. He was a great guy. And even when he was no longer working with Habitat, we'd hire him to be with us because he was so good he was so meticulous, he cared deeply about his work, and we enjoyed him a lot. So one year we were down there, we were working on multiple projects. We were going to basically build a house ourselves. And we had a great start the first day. In the middle of the second day, Habitat Tom started getting dizzy, and he was having chest pains. So, of course, we immediately stopped and got him into the hospital. Okay? And he was there for observation for the rest of the week. 
Now, on my crew, there was about 20 of us probably working at that particular house, and we had all kinds of different skill sets. So, you know, we knew that we could carry on, and Tom had left the, the drawings, the plans there for us to use. The trouble is we left the plans on the job site, and there was a torrential downpour the next, that night. So we showed up at the job site, and so I said, all right, go get the plants. And one of the high school kids came back with shreds of paper with faded and blurred ink. And someone said, those are our plants. So we're all looking at each other, and um, Mario was an engineer. Now, Mario was not a member of the church. His, his wife was and his in-laws were. And Mario was a quiet guy. Uh, you know, it was a really good guy. Uh, and, you know, no one was kind of talking. We we're all kind of looking at each other. And Mario goes, I think I remember the plans. Now, again, this is not to be offensive to any of you who are engineers, okay? I really admire your skill set. But my experience with engineers and work projects can always be a little tricky. Matter of fact, one year I had to separate two engineers, two of my elders who were engineers, almost came to fist fisticuffs because they were arguing over which way the angle should go, all right? And then I had another group of engineers who never quite got the project done because they were being too engineering, all right? So, I, again, I respect them. I don't understand them. But, again, sometimes, you know, engineers, uh, one project, one year I had engineers and lawyers on a project. Uh, yeah, you can just imagine how that went. All right, so anyway, Mario goes, I think I can reproduce the plans from my memory. And... All right, go at it, Mario. Well, we're on a work site, so we don't have any paper. So we finally find a carpenter's pencil and probably a sheet that came off of a pack of insulation or something like that, and he reconstructed the plans from memory. And so he took a nail, he, he nailed it up on one of the support beams, and so for the rest of the week, we worked off of Mario's memory. Matter of fact, the first day we get ready to leave, and one of the kids go, for God's sake, get the scrap paper. <laughs> so we got this done from memory. Now, um, that's a pretty, it's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. You know, we were kind of working in the dark, and it was from Mario's memory and a scrap of paper that we, we were no longer flying blind. We were probably just flying partially blind. <laughs> but the house, you know, we got the work done. And to best of my recollection or my knowledge, they didn't have to tear down everything we did. It was okay. The famous philosopher Kierkegaard has been attributed that saying faith is like a leap. You know, you've heard the idea of a leap of faith. He actually didn't use that phrase. Uh, he says faith is a qualitative leap. And what he means in part by that is to have faith, you have to have faith that faith works. So there's a sense where you take a step out into the darkness because you can't figure it out. You can't know it in a way like you know other things. Um, it takes faith to have faith. And in some levels, he goes on to say an objective uncertainty. In other words, you are saying yes to something that you cannot prove, you cannot see, you cannot know definitively, like we know other things. Now, faith for some people may be a bigger leap than others, all right? For some of us, 
We grew up around faith, and there was one day that we just kind of said yes to it ourselves. And maybe we've doubted it. Uh, maybe we've gone back and forth. We maybe haven't practiced it as much. But for some people, faith is kind of a natural transition. For some people, they're going totally one way, and they turn around and go the other way. But for all of us, faith requires some kind of movement. You're saying yes to something. You're saying yes to something that you cannot prove, you cannot see. You're trusting in something bigger than yourself. You're trusting in something that you believe will help you find your way. And in this passage, there are a number of different ways I think that, that faith is addressed. I think the first one is from dark to light. The, the prophecy from, from Isaiah that the one who's coming will bring the people from darkness into light. Now let's go back to the Habitat story. Now all of us at that site, we were deeply committed to the project. You know, people had given up vacation, they paid to go down there, so they were all committed to getting this house built. And around in this group, there were various degrees of skill. Right? So some people were very handy, other people were good at carrying stuff. All right? so, but nonetheless, we were all together. Now, what would have happened if we, were, we came to the site, there was no plans, there was no skilled worker there, and someone said, you know what, let's just all keep doing what we were doing yesterday. So there could be a sense we could have been pounding, we could have been sawing, we could have been working, you know, as hard as we could. Probably, the outcome would not have been so good, right? Okay. Right. Yeah, you, you need to measure twice and cut once, right? But if you don't know what you're measuring, <laughs> and if you don't know where you're going, right? So there's a sense where part of faith is moving from ignorance to know. There's a sense where the movement from darkness to light is, in many ways, a movement from, I don't know what's going on, to I begin to have a sense of where I'm going. And that's really uh, an important understanding of part of what goes on in, in faith in God. Because when you start believing in God, what you're saying is, I can't do this on my own. I need some guidance here. I need a plan. I need points of reference. I need a North Star. And faith is saying that I believe that in God, in the faith that's revealed in Christ, that there is a way forward in this life. You know, one of the most frequent expressions of uh, the Gentiles in the Old Testament was they didn't know their right hands from their left. There was without the right point of reference... You can have all kinds of activity. You can be as sincere as you want to be. But you can be sincerely wrong. In the history of the human race are a lot of people being very committed to very wrong things. And so there's a sense where part of what's necessary in faith is a movement from I don't know what's going on, I don't fully understand, to a movement into light. Sometimes we don't even know we're in the dark, right? until suddenly we see there's an alternative. St. Augustine, in one of the most important works ever written in the West, his Confessions, he talks about his own journey this way. He's addressing God. He says, Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you, 
You were within me, but I was outside. It was there that I searched for you. In my unloveliness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you, yet if they had not been in you, they would have not been created at all. You called, you shouted, you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, and you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Augustine was a pretty intelligent guy, a successful teacher of rhetoric, moving up in status, but it wasn't until he fully understood what it meant to follow God and Christ. Everything before that he sees as walking in darkness. So there's a real sense that the journey of faith is one from ignorance to knowledge. It's not only that, but I think that's an important part of what we do when we have faith. The message of Jesus is not that dissimilar from the message of John the Baptist. So part of faith is moving from darkness to light, but part of it is repenting, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the idea of repent, we talked about this a little bit before, is this idea of turning around. So there's a sense of not only is faith going from darkness into light, but it's changing your direction. And again, it doesn't mean you have to be somebody who is radically bad. Okay, I, don't, I grew up in a church where they, and a tradition where they bring in these people who've really done horrible things. And then they became Christians. And you know, almost, gosh, I wish I had murdered somebody. You know, it's almost, you know, no, that's not good, right? But these people have these powerful stories of how awful they were. I remember this one guy had been a, a mob hitman. He was shot five times. I mean, how do you compare to that? I mean, it was just a really powerful thing, right? But the reality of it is, whether you're a mob hitman or a respectable citizen of your community, if you're going the wrong direction, if you're not following God, then you're going to eventually be off the mark. I think I've told this story before. I was roofing. When I worked my way through college during construction, and I was roofing, and I got very, very proud of the way my lines were going. And, you know, I said, well, why do I need to keep chalking a line? I've got this thing straight, so I will just put my shingles on based on the last line of shingles. So I was working really hard, and the, they left me on this roof by myself, which was their first mistake. So the, the foreman comes by and says, Bill, come on down. And so I climbed down. I was really proud. I thought he was going to say, what a good job you're doing. He goes, look at your shingles. And they were okay initially. But then one of them got off by, you know, just a quarter of an inch or maybe even less. And by, by the time I was done, the roof was kind of diagonal and I hadn't seen it. And, uh, and he goes, I said, well, maybe that'll work better. And he goes, no, rip them off. All right, so I just got off by a little bit, right? But the end result is the same, right? So this, that's part of what this idea of repentance is. You have to you have to change the direction you're going, whether you're you know whether you're you know going full blown into the depths of darkness or just slightly off. The end result is the same. Now, what's interesting? Jesus is saying, "Repent, for the kingdom is at hand." And what kingdom becomes <laughs> one of the things that got him killed was what they thought the kingdom was. And what they hoped the kingdom was was very different than what he was saying. 
In Mark's gospel, it says, you know, which Matthew is based on here, it, it says, uh, Jesus said, repent, repent <clears throat> and believe in the good news. But you don't get told what the good news is. And the implication is, the good news is Jesus himself. How is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Well, because Jesus is here. So there's a sense where we're not just repenting. I mean, it's just not about uh, reforming your ways. Okay? Sometimes religion de-evolves into a set of morality. And maybe you don't think that's a de-evolution. Okay? There's nothing wrong with morality. But that's in part what Kierkegaard was reacting in the good, complacent Christian society he was in. And sometimes that's a danger when we think somehow that our country is a good Christian country and that becomes a cultural thing. There's a sense where it's not about morality. It's about repent for Jesus is at hand. Which leads to maybe the most important aspect of faith, at least one of the most important, I think, is what does Jesus say after he proclaims the kingdom is at hand and he goes and begins to gather followers. What is the call Jesus says to them? He says, believe this? Sign up for this? No, he says, follow me. And that might be the most important thing because it's not just about being enlightened. It's just not about knowledge. It's just not about turning your life around. But it matters who is the object of your faith. It matters who are you following. Monday <clears throat> excuse me, will be the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And Lawrence Rees is one of the most um, important historians of totalitarianism and of the Holocaust uh, of the modern period. He, uh, you may probably, if you've watched anything on BBC or NPR about uh, the Holocaust, it may very well have been somebody, he might have been behind it. He produced many shows about this. He wrote a book, Auschwitz, A New History. And one of the things uh, I heard him interviewed, um, and one of the things he was asked, he said, people ask me all the time, can you, can you come up with a reason why this happened? And he talks about, in many ways, Germany was the most unlikely place for it to happen. They were a cultural, they were a progressive uh, 20th century democracy, a struggling democracy, in many ways, the best literature, the best music, the best philosophy, a lot of the best theology had come from Germany. They had laws that were very protective of equal rights for Jewish folks, but it was Germany. A highly unlikely thing that happened if you look in the context of history. And he said, I still don't know. He says, the more, the more I try to understand it, uh, the less I do. He says, but what was different about the totalitarianism in Germany as opposed to some of the other places he studied was they had a clear belief that they were right. He quotes um, Himmler and Hearst talking about the Jehovah Witnesses in the camp. Okay. He says, this is one of the most chilling things I've ever read because Himmler and Hearst says, we really need our people to become more like the Jehovah Witnesses. They have absolute, unshakable faith. That's what we need people to have for the Fuhrer. It matters who 
or what you follow. If you set the people who crucified Jesus aside and asked them, well, what did you do this? The Romans would say, well, we were just following orders. The mob said, hey, listen, everybody else was saying it. This many people can't be wrong. The Pharisees would say he was a false teacher spreading dangerous untruths. The Sadducees would say he was a threat to our core values and our established way of living. It matters where you put your faith. Absolute faith can only be put in the absolute. I do think in many ways to be a person of faith always means we need to be humble. I think a lot of this life is a lot like building a habitat house from a scrap of paper. Right? Okay, we have the Bible. Right? We get together and we talk and, and, and we, we try to figure out what we're doing here. In this analogy, Jesus is the drawing. Jesus is the plan, right? But we, we, we trust that what we know about him is worth following. The knowledge we have of God is something that can set us free. Turning around from our own way to the way of Christ is the way to go. But we always must be careful that faith is always something that must be done with humility. Right? Because to proceed into the unknown is to proceed with prayer and to proceed with caution, but ultimately trust. You know, I, I one time heard someone said, if you notice, when Jesus says, Come follow me, he doesn't tell them where they're going. <laughs> because if he actually told them where they were going, he might not choose to go. Right? <laughs> oh, by the way, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get killed. Okay. Even when he does tell them down the road, they don't want to live, they don't want to believe it. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. Following Christ, faith does not mean that the road is going to be easy. There's no guarantee. Matter of fact, the Bible is pretty clear that faith often leads us to places we do not want to go. But it is the only place where the light is. It is the only thing worth giving yourself to. Who we trust needs to be trustworthy. And we believe that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.